This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Chapter 8. Hebrews 8, we're looking at uh, verses 1 through 13. Hebrews 8, 1 through 13. Hear the word of God. The writer of Hebrews has been pointing out the superiority of Christ's priesthood. We pick up with verse 1. Now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. They shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, that for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for your word and pray that as we study it tonight, that your spirit would guide us into a deeper understanding of it. And Lord, especially as we think about your priesthood on our behalf, uh, help us to understand and appreciate all that that means. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Refrigerators are great. It can be one of the hottest days in August in Georgia, and yet the refrigerators keeping everything nice and cold. They keep milk fresh, keep food from spoiling, keep the tea cold. And we tend to take that for granted. You just you just go and you open the door and it's cold and you pull something out and it's cold until the power goes out. And then you realize the time of things being cold is limited. And so, you know, you, you, you don't open the door unless you have to. And when you open it, you get something and close it really quickly to try to keep the cold inside as long as you could. 
Well, of course, before the refrigerator was invented, people would keep things cold with an ice box and have a block of ice, and someone would come around selling ice. Never quite knew where they got the ice. I guess they got it from up north where it, where it grew naturally. Um, but they would have to bring ice in and sell blocks of ice. You'd put this block of ice in there, and that's what would help keep things cold in the ice box. And we do that some today. When we go camping or traveling or whatever, have an ice box with some ice in there to keep, keep it cold. It works reasonably well. But I don't think we'd ever want to go back to that in replace, uh, in place of our refrigerators. Uh, the new is so much better. Well, that's exactly the argument that the writer to the Hebrews is making here, that the Old Covenant was adequate to a degree, and yet the new is so much better. Now, again, the writer of the Hebrews has been making his case for the superiority of Christ's priesthood over the old Levitical priesthood that we've had in the Old Testament. We saw last week in chapter 7 that Jesus had a better priesthood, that he himself was a better priest. He had a better priesthood because it was a permanent priesthood. He didn't die and have to be replaced as were the human priests. He was a priest because of this unchanging oath of God that establishes him in that office. He was sinless, unlike Aaron, unlike uh, the Levitical priests, which even at their best were sinful and at times were not even at their best. Well, here in chapter 8, the writer drives home his case for Christ's superior priesthood. That's what we want to look at this evening. Again, just arguing this case, writing to Jewish believers uh, who believe this, and yet seem to be slipping, seem to be kind of backpedaling a little bit. And he wants to just convince them once again uh, to, to bring certainty in their hearts that what they have in Christ now is so much better than that old system, tangible as it may be, physical as it may be, visible as it may be, Christ is better. First argument he makes here is that Christ's priesthood is superior because he ministers from a better seat. See this in verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. Like the one he's been describing in chapter 7. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now, as he refers to Christ here, he's, he says a couple of things. One, talking about him being seated at the right hand indicates completion. That he sat down indicates itself completion, being finished. The work is done. You can search the Old Testament. You'll never find a reference to a priest sitting down, doing his job sitting down in connection with their work. There's a good reason for that. The work's never done. There's always more to do. Sitting indicates completion. It indicates you've done the work, now you sit down. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He is seated, seated at the right hand of the Father. Seated, as it says here, at the right hand of the throne, the majesty in heaven. Now, that indicates not only completion, that his his atoning work, his saving work was done, but it also indicates honor. He has not only the sense of completion that the Old Testament priesthood could never reach, but he also has this sense of honor. 
Now, the completion doesn't mean that he no longer has any thought for us. The scriptures teach that he can, he always lives to intercede for us. It's true. But the sense of, of making atonement has been completed. And he's honored because of that. Remember the scriptures say that because Jesus humbled himself to death on a cross, the Father exalted him to the highest place. Well, here he's sitting at the right hand, not of God, again, Acknowledging Jewish sensibilities about naming God, he refers to him that roundabout way, the majesty in heaven. And uh, to sit at the right hand was a place of honor. Uh, sort of an obscure reference along those lines came to my mind thinking about this. Um, after David died, King David died, uh, we know Solomon became king after him, and yet there was that, that wasn't guaranteed at the beginning. In fact, Adonijah, another one of the sons, was trying to get, get in position to become king, and that fails. And Nathan the prophet and Bathsheba go to David, make known to him what's going on. Uh, he hasn't quite died yet. Make known to him what's going on, that, that jockeying for position is taking place. And so this is, you have to name Solomon as your successor, which he does. Well, then Adonijah comes to, uh, goes to Bathsheba, and wants her to go to King Solomon and ask for him the hand of Abishag, uh, the woman who attended David to be his wife. And so Bathsheba agrees to do that. She goes to Solomon, approaches him on his throne, and Solomon has her seated at his right hand. His way of, of honoring Bathsheba, his mother. He honors her by having her seated at the right hand. Uh, which just demonstrates the sense of honor, the sense of position that that was. By the way, uh, Adonijah's request didn't go so well. Solomon recognized that uh, that was was sort of a roundabout way of trying to get power, trying to get influence. Didn't go so uh, so well. You can read about it in 1 Kings 2 and 3, what happens with all of that. But it's the person on the right hand. And so God has seated Jesus at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now, to which of the Levitical priests did the Lord say, sit at my right hand? Well, none of them. So Jesus has this seat, this place of honor uh, that alone belongs to him. So it's, it's, his priesthood is superior, verse 1 tells us, simply because of where he is. He is so honored uh, because of the nature of his work and because of who he is. Not only is it superior because he ministers from a better seat, it's, it's superior because, as he goes on to say, he ministers from a better sanctuary. He has a, has a better sanctuary. Uh, you see this in verse 2. Uh, he says he's a minister in the holy places. In the true tent, or the word could also be translated tabernacle, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. This is verse 3. Thus it's necessary for this priest to have something to offer. Uh, now, if you were on earth, you'd not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy, a shadow of the heavenly things. When Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Now, we've been studying Exodus on Sunday mornings. Uh, we're planning to go up through chapter 20 with the giving of the Ten Commandments at Sinai, where Israel is instituted as a, as a nation. But the first 20 chapters are not the main section of the book. The biggest chunk of the book 
26 chapters has to do with the establishment of the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. It has to do with the, the detail, the, the design, the uh, mechanics of this, this portable worship facility that the Lord was giving to Moses and to Israel. As you read through it, in great and sometimes agonizing detail, uh, the Lord gives to Moses exact measurements, precise details about the nature of this facility. And four different times in Exodus, he warns Moses, be sure that you make everything according to the pattern I've shown you here on the mountain. Four times. In Exodus chapter 25, uh, 26, 27, four times he says that. Why? Why does it have to be so exact? Because that earthly tabernacle was in some way a copy, a shadow of the true tabernacle in heaven. Whether there is a physical structure in heaven that looked like that, that this earthly one was literally a copy of, or if the design of the earthly one was meant to teach and represent truths about the presence and worship of God in heaven. The point was it had to be exactly the same. It had to be exactly the way God made it. Which, by the way, um, is not the first time in Scripture that God is very precise about how things are to be done, which reminds us, since the tabernacle had to do with worship, uh, that we're not at liberty to devise on our own how we worship God. God reveals in Scripture how he is to be worshipped in various ways, various elements, various aspects of worship, and he does not leave us at liberty to determine how we decide we worship God. Now, within the elements that he gives, obviously there's considerable liberty and leeway that we meet at 11 o'clock, that we meet at 8.30 and not 8 o'clock and 10.30, is 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 fairly indifferent a matter. Uh, but the fact that we have the preaching of the word, the fact that we have the Lord's Supper, the fact that we uh, sing hymns of praise to God is, is not a matter of indifference. Uh, we're not to design worship, just like Moses wasn't just to think up and design some sort of worship facility on his own for the worship of God. God said, follow this pattern very carefully. And at the end of the book, in chapter 40, Exodus 40, God shows his approval by moving in, by filling the tabernacle. And you have that that glory, that radiance that comes into the tabernacle. But even so, even though God in his mercy agrees to to dwell in the midst of his people in his tabernacle, that that itself remains and is only a shadow of the heavenly tabernacle, the dwelling place which God himself has erected, not Man, human priests served in this heavenly or in this earthly tabernacle, but Christ serves in the heavenly. The risen, ascended Christ now serves in the very presence of God in the heavenly tabernacle, of which the earthly one was a shadow. And that is why uh, he's making this case here. Why he mentions this? Where is Jesus? Well, whether there's a, a literal, real tabernacle in heaven or not, uh, Jesus is in the immediate presence of God. In, of which this earthly tabernacle was but a shadow. One implication of that, by the way, is that uh, worship on earth is no longer restricted to one place. 
whether the tabernacle or the temple, uh, that because Christ inhabits that heavenly tabernacle, presence of God in heaven, we can worship, we can draw near to him anywhere. You remember John chapter 4, where Jesus referred to this morning, Jesus talking about this this water that he gives, that we will not be thirsty ever again, uh, talking to the woman at the well. they were talking about her, but very quickly they're talking about worship. She changes the subject. You know, I see you're a prophet. Where should we worship? You know, we Samaritans say Mount Gerizim, you Jews say Jerusalem, Mount Zion. And Jesus says this to her. He says, believe me, time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. Time is coming, has now come. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, those are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Uh, God is spirit. Worshipers must worship in spirit, truth. Uh, The place becomes irrelevant because we draw near to a high priest who serves in heaven itself. So wherever on earth we might be, it really doesn't matter. There's no one holy place on earth where we have to go and worship God. Now, it's not where you are, it's who you are. It's not where you are, it's the condition of your heart. It's not where, who you, where you are, but coming to Christ by the Spirit and according to his truth. And Christians meet in all kinds of places. I was talking to somebody in the men's Bible study uh, Friday, um, sharing a, a memory from the uh, summer I was able to spend in Korea. The first Sunday... We were there. We went out and visited one of the village churches the missionaries were working with and uh, worshipped in what essentially had been a cow shed that had been dressed up a little bit, a uh, tiny room. We all sat on the floor in front of a massive pulpit, big pulpit, much bigger than this. It, it would be big in this room, but it was a massive pulpit, which said something uh, about the nature of worship. The, they, they may be meeting in a small room, maybe meeting just a small group of people, but they were there for a big purpose, and that was to worship God and hear the preaching of the Word, uh, but a very humble situation. The last Sunday that I was in Korea, we worshipped uh, in the what it was then, I think still is, the largest church in the world, uh, which at the time was approaching half a million members. Magnificent building. I mean, it, it sort of had the feeling of going... Um, into Phillips Arena or something. It seated 20,000. Even at that, they had six services on Sunday uh, with an hour in between to empty and refill. Uh, Balconies, full orchestra, simultaneous English translation, uh, just just immensely impressive facility, especially in contrast with, with where I started out. But which one was God more pleased with? Which one was more worshiping God? Well, well, neither, because the structure didn't really even matter. They were coming to Christ in spirit and truth. They were worshiping ultimately in that heavenly sanctuary, that heavenly tabernacle where Christ, our high priest, ministers. So Christ's ministry is superior, he's arguing here, because he serves in a better sanctuary. He serves in that place in the heavenlies, not made with human hands. The third reason he gives is Christ is superior, his ministry is superior, his priesthood is superior because he ministers through a better covenant. Now, mentioned this last time back in chapter 7, but here he elaborates on it mostly by quoting from Jeremiah and this whole, whole uh, promise of a new covenant that the Lord would make. 
Now, in the Old Testament, Moses was the mediator of the covenant initially, and then later, of course, the human priests uh, through the Old Covenant. But Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant, the New Covenant. Uh, it's the expression of, of God's grace to his people, this New Covenant of grace. Uh, it, is, it, is, it is to the Old Covenant what a frigid air is to an icebox. It does the same thing, but it does it better, and it does it on a more permanent basis. It's not that the Old Covenant was false or wrong, although it was faulty. Verse 7, the, that first covenant had been faultless. Uh, verse 8, he finds fault with them when he says... Uh, the point is not that it was bad, it was just ultimately inadequate. It was temporary. It didn't actually accomplish what it symbolized, and the new covenant does. It represented reconciliation between God and man with the sacrificial system, the animals, but ultimately it would be Christ who would actually achieve that atonement. And that's the point he's making here. Finds fault with him. Verse 8, when he says, Behold, the days are coming when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Uh, for one thing, it itself was symbolic. For another thing, the people themselves were so rebellious and wicked within it, God wound up uh, judging them, chastening them. They did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Well, three improvements specifically we find here in Hebrews, uh, or actually Jeremiah, by way of Hebrews, three improvements as you move from the old to the new, this better covenant in which Jesus ministered. First, the new covenant is internal. Look at verse 10. It is internal. Well, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. And write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will put my laws into their minds. Now, that doesn't just mean people in the New Covenant are going to memorize Scripture a lot more than people in the Old Covenant. Although, maybe we do. We've got more of it to memorize, after all. Uh, but what he is saying is that, the, that along with having God's law written, we will have a new heart, that the principle of new life, the principle of obedience, is in us in a way that it was not in the Old Covenant. Now, that's not to say they didn't have change of heart. Uh, They did. They had to be regenerate, those who were faithful to the Lord, in order to do that. But by giving of his spirit, particularly, uh, God himself would dwell within us. The law would have a new life, a new vitality within us. His word would have a new power within us. And with the spirit, with a new heart, with a heart set free from sin and death through the death and resurrection of Christ, not only knowing the word and loving it, but having the power to live it out in an individual way, the way they didn't before. That's why he says, I will be their God. They shall be my people, this new living heart to know and love God. That was a change. That was something different as you go into the new covenant, this individualized power of the Holy Spirit to to live out who we are in now in Christ. It's also personal. Look at verse 11. They shall not teach each one his neighbors and each one his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. In the Old Covenant, the people knew God on a national basis. Their relationship with God was very much mediated through the human priest system. 
they didn't so much draw near to God as they drew near to the priest. The priest drew near to God on behalf of the people. But in the New Covenant, uh, we see not just an a, a, a approach to God as a whole, but individually. Acknowledgement of the Lord, a personal relationship. Each one would have a new heart. Each one would know God individually. That's why the scriptures refer to us as a kingdom of priests. We're all priests in the sense that we can go before the Lord, in the sense that we can make intercession for others before the Lord. Uh, when we pray here, when we pray for one another, when we pray for others, we are exercising that priestly role that the Lord has given to us of bringing the needs of others before the Lord, interceding for others. And so it's personal in this way. Now, we still exhort each other. We do encourage each other to faithfulness in the Lord. And even within the visible church, there may be those that we have to say to them, know the Lord. You need to come to know the Lord. Uh, But the point is, among those who are God's people, God's elect people, the invisible church, if we want to say it that way, they're all regenerate. They all have the Holy Spirit. They all know the Lord. And then finally, the last thing he says here, one reason it's, another reason it's improved is that it is effective. Look at verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. To have this personal relationship, God has to have dealt with our sins. He has to blot out our sins. And he promises to do that in the new covenant. Because in the new covenant, it is based on the shed blood of Christ, which doesn't merely symbolize atonement. It accomplishes. It's it's done it. It it satisfies God's requirement of justice. Christ has made the payment, and so God promises pardon. And in fact, we do have that. So these are the better promises of the new covenant. I'll put my law in their minds. They will all know me. I will remember their sins no more. This this relationship with God that's described in those terms. And so by speaking this way of a new covenant, he says in verse 13, he makes the old one obsolete. Interestingly enough, by the way, uh, he doesn't refer to the end of the temple, the destruction of the temple, which means that Hebrews was written probably, based on some other things, and it probably five to six years before the destruction of the temple, which was in the year 70, so probably A.D. 64, 65, somewhere along in there. Uh, if the temple had been destroyed, obviously he could have marshaled that into his argument. Uh, in fact, he seems to refer to the priests going about their business in the present sense uh, earlier on in this chapter, but it doesn't do that. But he says in verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. We know how things go obsolete. You know, you get a nice brand new computer and two months later they come out with a next generation processor and, you know, so on and so forth. You're always having to upgrade and continue because uh, technology tends to become obsolete. It seems like it does it pretty quickly. Well, so it is here. The old covenant is is... Now, obsolete, because a new one has come along. And if that's so, then the priesthood of Aaron has become obsolete. The earthly sanctuary and the sacrifices and all of that system, all of that is passing away because the the new era, the new covenant, the age of the Spirit has come, and it's here to stay. Now, again, in 70, that was made very concrete when the Romans took Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, uh, where all of that literally became rubble. 
it was destroyed, it was gone. Uh, nothing makes the point of obsolescence more than it being reduced to dust and rubble. But that was the case. No more temple, no more altar, no more holy of holies, no more priest, no more sacrifice, no more new covenant, or old covenant rather. It was gone. The old had gone. The new has come. And uh, that, that destruction made that point very powerfully. And so that's his argument here. Uh, the argument he makes of Christ's superiority. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away, and indeed it did. And so today we come to God through our great high priest, who's not ministering in any earthly structure, but ministers in the very presence of God. And we have access to God through him, the living way. So we thank God for him, and we draw near to God through him, and we enjoy God through him, whoever lives always lives, will always live, to serve as our great high priest, pleading the merit of his blood, uh, so that we are with the Lord forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the priesthood he represents. Thank you for the covenant that he represents. Father, we recognize that the old covenant was valuable. It had much to teach. And it prepared the way for the coming of the Messiah and the inauguration of a new form of the covenant of grace. Father, we thank you that we live in a day when we look back to the past to see the work of Christ. We can read about it in Scripture in great detail. Uh, Lord, an advantage the people in the Old Covenant didn't have. We thank you for the time in which we live, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your priestly work. Thank you, Father, for sending the Lord Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for drawing us to him. And we thank you, Lord, that our great high priest lives, that his offering of himself is sufficient for our salvation. And we give thanks to you and pray in his name. Amen.